I'm Mike Ryan, and thanks for joining us. It's been difficult to separate fact from fiction during this global public health crisis. We've seen a highly compromised WHO, no credible investigations into the origins of the disease, unprecedented media manipulation, and incalculable damage imposed by governments around the globe in attempts to manage the disease. It's a growing concern that the worst is not over with growing media censorship of dissenting views. President Biden has signed a dozen executive orders in the fight against COVID-19 in the US. England, well, it's a basket case as lockdowns continue. In Australia, the states decided to become de facto countries and you needed, and still do in some cases, a permit to enter another state. No longer are you an Australian. You're a citizen of the Republic of Victoria, a citizen of the Republic of Queensland. In fact, Queensland, it went one step further and mandated that you have to wear a mask whilst driving your car. True. And that happened when the government, the Queensland government, called a snap lockdown with no community cases a couple of weeks ago. Now, can you imagine if there was just one case? What do we really know about the vaccines that are soon to be made available in Australia? And what can we realistically expect from them? If they are as effective as we would expect, why are governments, including the Australian government, still telling us that international travel is at least 12 months away? And does the public know enough about the prevalence of this disease and its real risk? We're inundated each day with breathless media reporting of exploding cases around the world and a disease that appears to be out of control. Should we know more about the COVID-19 test and what a positive test and headline statistics mean? Dr. Eamon Matheson is a prominent medical specialist and a member of the COVID Medical Network, which has been prepared to speak out about government responses to COVID-19 outbreaks. The network provides scientifically based information on their website, which is covidmedicalnetwork.com. Dr. Matheson, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Tell us about the, I think it's polymerase chain reaction test or just the PCR test, what it measures, what it does not, and if it's being properly used in Australia. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, yeah, the PCR test essentially, I, we believe, is the foundation of the response to the pandemic uh, that we've witnessed both in Australia and around the world. Uh, when the on a daily basis, for example, Daniel Andrews is announcing cases. It's based upon a positive reaction to this PCR test. So the PCR test, um, it's well known. It's been around for a long time. It's simply a mechanism, almost like a microscope, of um, multiplying a very small amount of genetic material that can be found in a nasal swab, amplifying that to the point that it can be examined and measured and tested. So what it does measure uh, essentially is genetic material, small levels of genetic material. And when it, uh, what, what it is looking for is a sequence on a particular virus or some sort of biological entity. So what it doesn't measure is 
uh, the infectiousness or the infectivity of a given individual who may respond positively to that test. Now, if all the experts are aware of this. The Department of Health has said this. It's a test that does not differentiate between live and unlive virus. The Department of Health and Human Services in Victoria has communicated to us that it, in fact, is a test that is not a sign of infectivity or not an indicator of infectivity, particularly when people are testing positive for months after having had a given illness. So the question is why the test, a positive test, is being used as synonymous with a person being infectious and therefore requiring quarantining or uh, assuming that they will be contagious to others and the rest of the community. This is a question that has been raised by experts all around the world. There are currently legal challenges happening in Europe, in Germany in particular, in Canada and the US, to say that quarantining is um, inappropriate if it is only based upon a PCR positive test and is dissociated with clinical symptoms. Now, what's interesting is that that case has already been run in Portugal, and they've found that there was uh, significant grounds to, to, to show that the PCR test alone was not appropriate or not valid to uh, lead to the quarantining of the population. And we're hoping that that similar uh, concerns will be raised by medical professionals and be and raised with the experts and the health bureaucrats and the politicians to fully understand this, the implications of that Portuguese test uh, legal case that went through and just the realities of this test and also for the community to understand what it is that's happening. Is this the only test for COVID-19 or are there others? It is the main one. This is what uh, we've had 11 million tests. It's quite extraordinary. Uh, 11 million tests have been done in Australia and a population of 25 million. Um, you compare that to other years where they're testing for flu. It's just an, uh, it's infinitesimal in comparison to that. So the overwhelming test that has been used both in Australia and around the world is the PCR test. Um, there are other ways of telling whether someone has had an illness if they're looking at uh, antibodies uh, that shows that they've had an immune reaction to a specific virus, but that's not something that has been well used. The other thing is that the confirmation of uh, the presence of a virus uh, can be done with viral culture to see whether the virus, in a sense, is technically live, alive and replicatable, or whether it's just dead unlive uh, genetic material. But viral culturing is rarely, very rarely done. So there are other tests in a sense that indicate uh, or might, might back up the PCR test. But the fact that PCR tests are used and dissociated with clinical realities and clinical symptomology is really, we believe, and many experts in the, around the world believe, is fundamentally a flawed approach to the public health um, response. Can you tell us how COVID-19 then is reported, say, in Australia, and how testing feed into the reporting? Yeah, so there is a document um, that the, uh, has been published um, by the um, public health authorities, the Department of Health, that defines what a case is. Um, it's not well explained uh, in the community uh, or by the politicians when they're um, rattling off the numbers of cases each day and they've found three or four cases or even 700 cases a day in, in, the, in the example of in Victoria at its peak. 
Now, there is a definition for it. It's a very convoluted definition. Um, it can it relates to the PCR test uh, predominantly, um, but there are various other factors. So they're talking about uh, laboratory confirmed cases, historical confirmed cases based upon associations and contacts with other people. It's fairly convoluted. We will put it, putting the actual document up on our website. Um, but there's a very broad understanding of what constitutes a case. And what's interesting is that it seems to go against what we have always understand, understood to what a case of an illness or a violent illness means. So we would normally say we could screen everyone for a particular uh, uh, contaminant, a microbiological contaminant in, in uh, nasal uh, passages, etc. For example, MRSA um, or other viruses, noviruses that cause certain illnesses. But if we were to find that, we wouldn't often say that this person has that illness. They're not septic, they're not unwell, they're not infectious. And so as a screening tool uh, to simply find genetic material that's consistent with parts of a particular virus, to conclude that that person is infectious and has an illness is very uh, unusual in terms of the normal, uh, normally understood um, medical terminologies. And that's one of the things that I think has led to a great deal of confusion. And what we've been asking for is uh, clarity in regard to this and transparency. Uh, so we've written to and contacted many of the pathology labs as well as the uh, uh, public health uh, authorities to ask for why and uh, why they are doing these tests, what the, the cases actually mean, and give examples of that. Um, we think that there's an inference that when they say a positive case, the assumption is that that person is sick and unwell, but we can't really find out or confirm that that is actually the case. Is it possible then that the reporting of COVID-19 cases have been perhaps overstated in, uh, in many countries? That is the concern. Uh, and, and I think it varies from country to country. The American doctors that I am speaking to are talking about um, a very, an, an increase in unwell people presenting to hospitals and to themselves, and hence they're advocating for the early treatment um, options that are the antiviral anti-treatments um, um, to be more uh, utilised. Uh, they've been often banned. So what they are saying is that the cases they are seeing and what they constitute a case is uh, someone who is unwell and it's linked very closely with symptomology. We're not sure if that is the case in Australia, um, and it's very difficult to find that out. Uh, we have requested that information. The other thing that is also important in terms of clarity is to understand how the test is actually being done. Now, this is a really crucial point. Um, essentially, the magnifying of the, the very small uh, detectable levels of genetic material need to be multiplied many, many times in order to be uh, accessible to the measurements and, and the study. So how many cycles the entity is doubled uh, requires uh, sort of some clarification. So we've asked various uh, pathology institutes what um, number of cycles, what we call the th cycle threshold is being used to detect this, these primers or these, uh, these bits of uh, genetic material. And we are hearing that upwards of 35 to 45 cycles are being used. And those numbers are really significant because if you know 
understand mathematics, it's like um, doubling the number of two, the number two, 45 times. And you end up in with numbers in well beyond the trillions. So, for example, the old, uh, as an example on a chessboard, they say that if you put $2 on one of, of the squares and you double it each time around the 64 squares, you end up with a number that's uh, 20 with 18 zeros after it. It's an enormous mm. number. Mm. I don't think we even have a name for it, that number. It's kind of up in the realm of, you know, Googles. <laughs> um, and so 45 is also an astonishing number that's well beyond the trillions in terms of the amplification of that material. And there are experts that are saying once you have done it, a cycle threshold to 45, what you are seeing and what you are finding is, is essentially meaningless. Mm. And so this is the concern that we're asking that the cycle thresholds be published for every positive test and for every test that is done. We have do have verbal and written confirmation of what is being practiced. It seems to vary from state to state. Mm. And we don't know why that is and why it's being varied and what the principles behind the choosing of those numbers are. Now, what's also really important, sorry, Mike, is that just yesterday, uh, the World Health Organization has finally come out to say that high number of cycle thresholds uh, can be very misleading and producing largely you know, false positives. I don't know what we're finding, well, you know, what it is that's mm. causing the PCR to positive test. Um, and it might be, a, uh, you know, other uh, viruses or viruses that certainly aren't alive, just dead genetic material that's being picked up at the back of the nose. So finally, the World Health Organization has come out and said this, but yet the entire year last year was based upon high cycle thresholds and, and raised a number of, you know, positive PCR tests. Heaven help us, though, if we were to criticise because... Uh, not only with the government, the uh, closed shop of the medical fraternity, uh, the media and everybody else, they would start pointing at you and I if we uh, disagreed with what is happening right now. But it's amazing how things change. Dr. Jay Richards uh, in the US said late last year that governments, having gone down a particular path and realising that that path is not so, so right in the first place, instead of saying, oops, we need to reevaluate things, they dig down even more just to prove a point and, 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 and can't be proved to have made a mistake. Uh, interesting times. Uh, always mentioned this last year, and I'll do it this year. First show for the year. The Chinese says, may you live in interesting times. And uh, Dr. Matheson, we certainly are, aren't we? You certainly are, but uh, things do change. Um, mm. It's hard to know what the motivations and intentions are behind uh, various decisions. But I think we need to, as you say, have the humility to re-examine uh, where we're going, uh, where we've been, why, why we are doing these things. And we're very much in favour of good uh, scientific and medical evidence to support any decisions that we're making. So um, we hope that that will continue. Mm. Um, there are sort of signs that, that the... the the, um, the status quo is being challenged uh, on many, many levels, and even the World Health Organization has uh, managed to turn around. So, you know, uh, interesting times, mm. that's correct. Mm. Dr. Matheson, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. So what can we look forward to in the next 12 months? Probably a worsening of the pandemic before it gets better. That's globally. Lockdowns, Economies on the verge of collapse, psychological damage to millions, nations divided, and freedoms expunged. Or will the global catastrophe be government, having found a means to totally control you, the masses, 
They simply will not give up that control. I'm Mike Ryan.